0: If you've never seen a beehive before, it pretty much looks like a wooden box. But when you open it up, inside, there's eight or 10 hanging frames. On each frame, there are thousands of bees diligently building wax, processing honey, feeding larva. Today, I'm inspecting my hive and doing what's called a sugar shake. To do a sugar shake, you get a frame of bees and shake them into a bucket. Then you get a half cup of bees, yes, a half cup, I literally use a measuring cup from the kitchen and scoop up bees in really gently. After that, you dump them into a jar really quickly and screw on the lid which has a mesh covering. Then scoop a tablespoon of powdered sugar and push it through the mesh. Then you wait. The bees start grooming themselves, desperately trying to get the sugar off of their bodies. After a minute, you grab the jar and start shaking it onto a white paper plate. If you're lucky, all you see is sugar. But most beekeepers, they see something else. They see one of the biggest threats facing bees, one of the most devastating animals, the varroa mite. They're just over a millimeter long, like tiny specks of pepper on the plate. But don't be fooled by their size. These mites are parasitic and feed on the fat bodies of the bees. Today, I only saw one mite. One mite per one cup of bees means my infestation rate is low. I can shake the sugar-covered bees back into the hive, and the other bees will help clean them off and eat the sugar. But if the infestation rate were over 3%, I'd need to treat them with a chemical miticide. Otherwise, I could risk the entire colony collapsing. Welcome to Behind the Veil, a show about a first-year beekeeper trying to answer the questions, what's killing bees and who's doing something about it? On today's episode, Dr. Gloria DeGrandy Hoffman.
1: I'm the research leader at the Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Tucson, Arizona. Our center is part of the Agricultural Research Service, which is the research branch of the United States Department
0: of Agriculture. Gloria has been studying bees for over three decades. She says it started when she was a kid. Her parents bought a house in an area that was still under development, so there were fields everywhere, and she'd go run around outside. I was one of those little kids that you know, would, would go out
1: with jars and collect insects, and I always liked that a lot. And, really decided at a a young age that I wanted to study insects. Probably by the time I was nine or 10 years old, I knew I was going to be working with insects the rest of my life.
0: It was in graduate school that Gloria realized it wasn't just insects she wanted to work with, but honeybees. It started with conversations she had with her advisor at the time.
1: Clarence Collison at, at Penn State I talked with him about pollination and honeybees, and he took me out to to see a honeybee colony, and
0: that just really, it was like, this If you, this is the best. In those days, and this was the 1980s, Varroa mites weren't really an issue. No, I, you know, I remember when Varroa first came into the United States, that
1: um, it was hard to find in a colony, and it wasn't really a huge problem we had one mite aside, that if you used one treatment, uh, well-timed treatment, you could, you could keep mites at a low level. And you wouldn't see things like deformed wings. When we did see things like deformed wings, folks thought it was because of parasitism. It, you know, we, we, it took us a while to, to make that connection between, you now
0: this is viruses, deformed wing viruses being transmitted. Let me pause here and give a bit of context. This deformed wing virus, it's one of the many diseases Varroa might spread. But deformed wing virus is particularly bad because when a young bee is infected with this, it'll grow up to have these short, stubby wings and it can barely fly, and then usually it dies 48 hours later. A healthy bee can live for over four months. So the point Gloria is making is that viruses like this used to be extremely rare. But then mite levels started to rise and Gloria started to work on research for a new miticide. I
1: specialize in populations, population dynamics, and that sort of thing, and we built this model that predicts population uh, growth in honeybee colonies and population growth of varroa in colonies, and we were using this
0: model to help develop a miticide. Gloria and a team of other researchers conducted a study over 11 months with 120 honeybee colonies. One half were treated with miticide in the spring, and the other half weren't. In the end, more than half of the colonies were lost across the board. Our numbers of mites were way higher than what the model was predicting. So
1: something had changed, and that uh, then got us interested in, whenever you see a population, there's a big jump in the population numbers, The first
0: thing you think about is, these things have to be coming in from the outside. Something had changed. Varroa can't fly, and each female only produces two or three offspring in her lifetime. So reproduction couldn't explain this huge jump in the numbers. But how are Varroa spreading? In the wild, Varroa can only spread if a honeybee colony is healthy, because when they're healthy, the colony gets big enough to swarm. This is when some of the bees fly off and start a new colony. I mean, that's the thing with any parasite. If you're going to kill your
1: host, you better have a dispersal strategy that happens before that or you're going to die too, right? And so, yeah, I mean, in when Varroa first came here and in colonies, like you say, that are unmanaged and in... Out in, out in the wild, Varroa would be there and would coexist with that host. And it was the dispersal mechanism, I believe, was swarming. And it enabled the population of mites to go down and for colonies to maintain a level of, of Varroa in the colony that, that wasn't actually harming the colony.
0: Gloria had a theory for what had changed. Varroa mite were taking advantage of honeybee behavior. Varroa has changed
1: its dispersal mechanism, which used to be through swarming. And only through swarming, that's how it would disperse. But now it's also dispersing
0: through getting on foragers and, and moving to other colonies. To understand this piece, you need to know how bees grow up. The queen bee lays an egg in one of the hexagonal cells, and three weeks later, a new bee emerges. Her first job? Clean up her cell. Then she's promoted to nurse bee. She needs to go and get honey from the food cells and feed it to the young bees. And after a month of doing that, she's ready to become a forager, to go out into the world and find pollen and nectar to turn into honey. Normally, Varroa feed on the nurse bees, which don't fly out of the colony, but Gloria believed that mites were now dispersing by hitchhiking on these forager bees. So she devised another test to find out if this was the case. I mean, we wanted to be able to see if mites were actually on
1: foragers and what the frequency of finding them would be. And so what we did was we modified the entrance to honeybee colonies and and, and instead of letting them come in and out, you know, across the bottom board, we put this PVC pipe in there and put a slit in the PVC pipe right in the middle where we could drop a screen. And so the bees were coming and going through the PVC pipe and when we wanted to sample them, we would empty out the PVC pipe, put it back into the colony and wait a minute or so and then drop the screen. And so anything that was from the colony to the screen were. Bees coming out of the colony and anything from the screen to the outdoor, were bees coming into the colony, and so we could separate those two populations. And so then we put the corks in both ends of the PVC pipe, and dumped the outgoing foragers in one bottle and the incoming foragers in another bottle, and then put them in the refrigerator to cool them, and and then went through them and looked at the proportion
0: of those foragers that had mites on their bodies. So what'd they find? Both populations of foragers, the ones coming in and the ones going out, had mites on them. The foragers are really young bees
1: that are still resembling nurse bees to the, to the varroa. And so they get on them, and then that bee isn't
0: doing nurse behaviors, it's actually a precocious forager so the forager bees are weak and then they get lost and wander into other colonies and weaker colonies are more likely to see foragers from healthy colonies visit to rob them and then bees are all going into each other's homes and bringing varroa along with them and because commercial apiaries have hundreds of hives all super close to each other it doesn't matter if varroa kill 40 percent of their hosts because there's more where that came from
1: varroa has adapted to the way that we keep
0: bees, and
1: selection pressures have switched, so that highly virulent forms of varroa are are now, there's, there's no selection pressure against them if you have an apiary with hundreds of colonies. And bees are able to drift among the colonies, and they can disperse that way. If they kill a colony, the colony gets robbed by its neighbors, and it can disperse that way. And I think that there, the selection pressures have changed, not just for the varroa, but also for the viruses. I mean, we have always found viruses in bees, but they were always asymptomatic. You know? And that's not the case anymore, especially with things like deformed wing virus, where a colony that has a lot of mites in it, you see deformed wings and you see the the... the the presence of the disease. I mean, it's expressing itself. And it's that transmission of the virus by the varroa and the effects on the immune system. And so, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things about, as you know, you know, and when you're dealing with anything in, in biology and in nature, things are continuing to shift and move through time. And the picture that you saw 10 years ago it can be very different from the picture that you're seeing today. And I think that the interaction of varroa and honeybee colonies, especially in managed honeybee colonies, is an example of that.
0: All of this made me feel, well, kind of depressed. If the way we're keeping bees is part of the problem because it makes it so easy for mites to spread, where do we even go from here? Is there any hope? The problem seems so big. I asked Gloria what she thought. first
1: question is, are they just going into any random colony that they see out there? Or are there particularly particular cues that they're getting from certain colonies that are making them go into those colonies as opposed to other colonies? And so we're going to look at that because if there are cues and they attract forgers with mites, then we may be able to do things like set up like bait colonies, where you would catch foragers with mites, and
0: those bait colonies would have things like miticides. That's one option, and it sounded like it made a lot of sense. Attract the forager bees with mites on them, and then use miticides on those bees so then they're mite-free. But then she proposed another idea. Giant refrigerators. Cold storage. To me, that's one solution, is that taking colonies out of
1: the environment, say, in mid-October, putting them in, you know, treating them make sure that they have very low mite numbers and then putting them in cold storage for the winter just stops all that migration problem in the colonies.
0: Like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I'm a first-year beekeeper. So when I heard this, I immediately thought, how could this possibly be the solution? Bees in cold storage? I mean, in theory, it makes sense. If the bees are cold, they all cluster together in the hive, so they're not flying around spreading varroa mite to each other, but it still seems super expensive and unlikely. Well, it turns out I was wrong, as first-year beekeepers often are. This cold storage thing has been happening since 2017, and it's just starting to get a little more popular.
1: So we did an economic analysis where we had two sets of colonies, and we were able to, from information the beekeeper gave us, keep track of all of our expenditures from the time that those colonies were split in April and taken then in June up to the Dakotas and then to cold storage, half of them went to cold storage, half of them went back down
0: to Texas to overwinter as active colonies. If you're a little lost, don't panic. So was I. Honeybees aren't just used for honey, they're used for pollination, mostly for almond crops, which need to be pollinated in the winter around February. So in the fall, apiarists normally keep their bees outside, but there aren't a lot of flowers at this time. So you need to feed the bees sugar, water, and protein supplements. And what Gloria's suggesting is in the fall, put them in cold storage instead. They live longer, they need less resources, and they're not flying around spreading varroa to each other, so when February rolls around, the time to pollinate almond crops, your bees are super healthy. And what we found was that the ones that we put in cold
1: storage, it's, it's less expensive. So in, in terms of, is it economically feasible to put colonies in cold storage as opposed to managing them over the winter in apiaries? Yes, it's, it's actually, it's less expensive. So there's, there's an economic
0: benefit. I was surprised too. It's actually cheaper. It turns out the idea isn't crazy. Gloria's team even put together another mathematical model so beekeepers could figure out which colonies to put into cold storage and exactly when to put them into cold storage. Maybe there is hope after all when we say, save the bees. Still, this phrase feels a little empty to me. Everyone says it, but most of us don't really know what to do about it. Gloria, though, she's dedicated her whole adult life to studying bees, to figuring out how to save them. I asked her what she thought about Saving the Bees being in vogue.
1: You know, when I first started my career and, and so forth, and people would ask you what you did for a living, you say, I work with honeybees, and they would start telling you about the time they were stung right I'm sure you get that as as well oh I remember getting stung as a kid or whatever now when you say oh I work with honeybees it's like oh my god really you know how important they are and they'll start telling you about how much of your food comes from pollinators and they're they're very knowledgeable and not just adults little kids will tell you how important honeybees are so um, it's 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 wonderful to hear that that know people their consciousness has been raised about how important bees and pollinators are, and how we all play a role in um, keeping those populations uh, healthy and and, and growing.
0: With new techniques like cold storage, we can create healthier colonies that can pollinate all of the crops we rely on bees to pollinate. And of course, we need them for honey, too. Honey is an $8.4 billion market. That's a lot of honey. But... Is it all honey? On the next episode, I tell the story of Dr. Jim Gawainis, a chemist who's an expert on fraudulent honey. Behind the Veil is hosted by me, Alfredo Salkeld, and produced in partnership with Buda Bee Apiary. Buda Bee Apiary is dedicated to helping people fall in love with honeybees one backyard at a time. Thank you so much to Dr. Gloria de Grandy Hoffman for taking the time out of her day to speak to me and be very patient with all of my questions. If you learned anything about honeybees on this episode, I have a huge favor to ask. Can you please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? I feel a little cringy asking, basically begging for it, but it really helps us find speakers and it really helps listeners find us. Thanks so much.